Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Austin, Texas. Welcome to the show, Tom Staub. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Great to have you here. Now, Tom, you've been at this game for quite a while in a number of different roles, and I love some of what you're doing with new development projects. But before we dive into those details, maybe give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. 12, 13 years been doing this. We started way back after the crash, um, just doing your typical flips. You know, I was one of the guys picking up the hammer and doing the sheetrock, the tiling, all that. that. You know, we started that in Indiana. Moved that operation to Cleveland, Ohio, which was interesting. Little fun fact: we, no joke, we we had fired up to eighty subs um, in that market. Very hard market to get your subs lined up. And then we um, we pivoted in 2015, 14, 15 into the syndication space, which is you know that was a hot topic uh, in 2016 to through 18. And we went down to Huntsville, Alabama, where we did our first syndication. Did two down there. Went back to Cleveland, oddly enough, to do another one. And then in 2017, we pivoted to land development with our first deal out in Flagstaff, Arizona, kind of on a whim. Uh, out of a divorce sale, we got 80 acres for $80,000. Nice. Couldn't really fail, I guess. Um, we l- learned a lot and we just finalized our third exit today. Actually, I signed the documents for that. Out there, we have our own machinery. We have a whole sub team that's ground up development. And now we are in Austin, heavily active, primarily in the south corridor of Austin, more or less, we're following the water and the water's gone south. Absolutely. Well, Austin's a fabulous market. Obviously, it's a growing city. There's a ton of employment coming into the city, both in the tech sector, in manufacturing, and uh, just the city overall is growing. It's just attracting people because it's a great place to live. And I spent a lot of time there over the years myself. Today, you're working on this project south of Austin, Texas. Tell us a little bit about that because it's a little bit of a different concept. Yeah. So if you look at our portfolio today, we have five communities around the Austin MSA, not in Austin, but around it. We have two master communities in the county of Caldwell County. Uh, That's where the Micron site was going to be. And there's some others coming in potentially, but um, we have two there, one 700 acres, the other is a thousand acres. And those will be each about 10 year projects, 10 to 12 phases, depending. And the unique thing about those communities is that I think what we're seeing back in the day, you would see kind of the, the the suburban sprawl of spec homes, high volume, 100 to 150 homes being delivered per year. Not much, you know, amenities or walkability. That's rapidly changing, right? And there's a movement called Strong Towns created by the fellow Chuck Marone. And my Red Oak Development Group does own an engineering firm called Viewpoint. My head of engineering there is a passionate believer in this movement. It's the idea that the zoning is flexible and allows the community to kind of grow within itself in this flexible zoning. And so our communities have a variety of products, you know, whether it be affordable micro housing, um, which you can call what you want, but it's essentially single story with garages, 1,000 to 1,400 square feet, townhomes in the modern farmhouse style, going into the entry-level homes in the mid threes. We do have move-ups. And then we have in our later phases more of the luxury style, right? So the idea, just from the housing standpoint, is that you can start owning a home in your 20s, uh, get into your 30s and have a family, move up into your 40s where there's more wealth, and then hopefully retire and back into one of our more luxury gated communities. 
Now, we also have unique things. For example, our communities down there have 23% of the land as, as a park space, right? So that's more than doubling the standard of what we see across the United States. One thing that I'm passionate about is we have a whole sector of what we call micro retail. It's these 200 to 600 square feet pop-up shops. And we have this community circle that they surround with, and it's all park facing. No car parking, it's all walkability, bike paths. Even our drainage systems are all, are all culverts, right? So you, you can make the drainage into some pretty unique pathways for walking and jogging and what have you. We also have things like community farms where we're very heavy on all the all the farming that, that we teach or allow people to, to, to learn about to a point where we're considering bringing in cattle and goats into our communities, right? Which is pretty, pretty unique. And then lastly, I'll say one of the things that we're really, I'm pretty passionate about is having some traditional community elements, but having a modern twist. One of those modern twists is that we have a partner uh, centric where we bring in gas and fiber optics. So these communities are full smart Wi-Fi across the entire community. If you're an owner, you can log into your network, leave your house, walk your dog, and have Wi-Fi throughout the parks. So even our park space is geared towards that idea of remote work. We have gazebos where, where you can sit down and do all the working and everything else. Um, and on top of that, we have, we're heavy in schools. So we, um, in our one community, we're, we're looking to donate 40 acres to the school to have a K-12 through school. And then we also are big on medical clinics. So we bring um, a variety of med tail, as we call it, to the you know orth- orthopedic, dental, just some of your basic stuff. So again, you don't really have to leave the communities to live. Absolutely. Now, anytime you're talking about doing a large master plan community, the number one question when you're talking about taking very large acreage is services. How are you getting the services to the site? Are you doing a ton of offsite improvements in order to get the services where you need them to be? How's that working out? Yeah, that's a, that's a question for every everyone, right? Each community will have its own sewer plant, right? So we, we have a partner that's going to maintain that. There are some water offsite extensions, roughly a mile to two miles. These both will be mud districts. So we're, you know, there's a lot of improvements that we have to do here. Um, our road improvements are in the multi-millions of dollars. We're really changing the the community from a park uh, services and roadway improvements. So we're not tapping into the water line out front, I wish. Yeah, absolutely. So the municipal utilities district, is that an existing one or are you forming one of your own? We are forming one in each community. Fabulous. So are you incorporating these communities or are you remaining within the county? So one is just county, the bigger one, thousand acres. The other one, we are in talks with the city of Lockhart to uh, incorporate into the city. So it'll be an in-city mud. So it'd be an annexation basically right. into the existing Correct. municipality. Yep. Okay. Very interesting. Now, one of the things that we've often encountered when you're close to another municipality, even if you're not annexed into the city, you're sometimes into what's called the ETJ, the extraterritorial jurisdiction, where they get to have a say in improving your project, even though you don't get any of the benefits of being part of the community. Has that been an obstacle for you? Has that been a consideration? Um, So the the bigger one is not in the ETJ. The the smaller one, I say smaller, 700 acres, that one is in the ETJ, right? And, you know, I think at the end of the day, how we go about our business is there's enough dollar signs in these projects that if we come to the table, all, all of us, and we're transparent about what we need, there's a way to benefit the city there's a way to benefit us. And there's some things that need to happen for that to happen, right? Like again, for example, in the smaller one, we're giving 40 acres away to the school, but in, in turn, they have to, they'll have they be building a top-notch STEM K through 12 school in our community. And, and in turn, the, the city has to give us a mud approval, right? So there's- 
There's a negotiation. Yeah. That's fantastic. Have you considered, and I don't know if the land that you're on has any conservation value, have you considered, given the large percentage of parkland, donating a portion to conservation and with all of the tax benefits that come with that? Absolutely. So I know there's some question marks around if this will be around long term, but we, so part of the 40 acres, we are looking into that as well. And then on top of that, we have, I think, 75 of 700 acres as dedicated parkland. So yeah, the, the idea is to have some sort of tax sheltering. I, don't, I, hate, I hate to call it tax sheltering, but that, I mean, that's what it is, essentially. So yeah, that is a part of our strategy. Fabulous. Well, I love the idea of the walkable community. That's certainly something we're planning in a lot of our communities as well. And in the Austin area, there's not a lot of that. You see a lot of new developments that are, like you said, the large tract housing with very little in the way of amenities. And it's just large bedroom communities with commercial centers, usually next to freeway on-ramps and not much in between. Yep. Yeah. I mean, um, again, I think the and, and, you know, and I'm sure you also see this, but we were just on the Zonda master communities. What do they call it? More or less, it was like the top master communities in the nation, right? And some of the common things that we're seeing, we're seeing six foot sidewalks. We're seeing a lot of walkability. We're seeing garages go to the back like it used to. And, you know, you're having porches in the front, big trees. Um, I, I do think lot, lot density, while the cities want to have 70, 80 foot lots, that's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but the products can still be built at the same size in a different manner. So garages go to the back, cars are off the streets. So bigger sidewalks, uh, you know, another one that we are trying to figure out how to integrate is large bodies of water, right? Now, primarily in Florida where there's ample rain, but, but we are seeing the best communities in terms of voting and surveys, having large bodies of water that can be very tricky with, you know, um, sanitation and everything else, but it's definitely something to to look at. Absolutely. What else should we What else should we focus on? Um, we can. I mean, some you know some common hurdles that I'm hearing in the market with builders and what they need. Um, e- even for us, like what are some of the common hurdles that we're seeing? You know, impact fees are definitely one of them. Uh, capacity of water and sewer has got to be up there. It's no secret that we're going into an economic cycle here and. Gosh, the cost of capital has gone up tremendously, even another half point this past week. And a lot of the builders that we talk to say that their inventory of land that they had projected to last them a year with their new forecast is good for three to five years. And they're good. They're not looking for additional land. So we're definitely seeing a slowdown, almost a systemic slowdown in new home construction. How does that affect the time horizon for your projects? Yeah, that's a great question. When I talk to uh, our capital partners, I, I often say 2023 will be the year of blood in the water for, mm-hmm. for developers. I know a lot of developers who are running very lean shops, both in on the employees, but also on the cash reserves, right? But a lot of our projects, the lots are coming to market in mid-2024, going into 25. So we're not out of the gates by any means, but we're timing-wise a little bit better than most. I think you have to question the land purchasing from builders versus the lot supply index, right? If you look at the lot supply index, you know we're still two times demand versus the supply in the market. Now, I think a lot of the public builders are moving to cash on the balance sheet temporarily. And my guess is they'll, they'll have to start picking up more lots towards the end of next year. I could be wrong, but I think that's what's going to happen. Um, also, you know, I think if you're private, 
you're probably going, going to be able to plan for 2025, meaning you might get better deals on lots right now. Um, if, you're, if your hurdle rate is reasonable enough where you can pick up lots to uh, build homes in two years, you're probably in a good spot. If you, if you really have to make use of your cash, then yeah, they're, they're, they're going to pause, but I think they'll be way behind on lots going into 2025. So, you know, we don't have the perfect crystal ball, but um, we do expect some slowing on our purchases. We do expect takedown schedules to have to come back quite a bit. And we just have to be very cost conscious on our capital. So some things that we're doing, all of our land buying, we're, we're, we're shifting towards seller financing, right? So the first thing we're doing is doing nine to 12 month periods for feasibility. We're also negotiating 15% off the land prices at the peak this year. So those two things are happening. And that, and that seller financing is on a leverage of 80 to 85%, right? So for easy math, if it's a $5 million land purchase, we're saying, hey, seller, we're going to give you five, call it a half million dollars. You're going to carry a note of four and a half million after we close. And that's going to be at an interest rate of five to five and a half percent for two years, right? And it's, and surprisingly, it's a it's amazing how many of these people are open to doing this. We've had zero objections and we've been able to restructure all of our debt on that side. So equity is reduced in our raising, which obviously is lower cost of capital overall. And that that affords us the ability to float the deal a little bit longer to kind of meet that demand that you're talking about. We've been fairly cautious about using debt on land. Now we have a couple of projects where we have some, but our most recent projects, we've funded 100% out of equity because we just don't know how long things will take. We don't. Obviously, these projects are d- designed to span economic cycles. If these projects are going to take 10 to 15 years, there's probably going to be another downturn or two in the middle there somewhere. Mm-hmm. So the idea of tying up a ton of debt where the meter's running and there's no income coming in per se, yeah, you can build reserves and all of that, but at a certain point, the scuba tank runs out of oxygen. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I'm curious. So in that structure too, I assume your equity is all profit sharing, right? Because if it's not, if, if, if there's a preferred return or if there is, um, yeah, I mean, essentially if it's a preferred return, it's kind of the same thing as debt. Correct. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, this is pure profit share. We're not, there's really no interest component to it whatsoever because you don't know exactly how things are going to take. Right. Yeah. I mean, those are great deals too. Yeah, I mean, um, you're spot on. We, whenever we we raise capital, we raise assuming paying off all the interest you know, over time. But yeah, it's a cash burn is the name of this game, and we we manage it very tightly. Absolutely. Now, in terms of exit strategy, are you looking to sell papered lots? Are you looking to sell shovel ready lots? Are you going vertical with some of these on some of these properties? What's the what's the exit strategy? Yeah. You know, in our so our, our our bread and butter starting out was sixty to ninety acres, right? So, and we were getting a density, give or take, of four to five lots per acre. You know, mostly forty and fifty foot lots, so a pretty simple community, if you will. In those scenarios, we would just do the improvements and then sell them as improved lots. The majority of our deals are improved lots. Now, these master communities. Because of our, our previous conversation on the capital, we have to have a variety of capital events to start paying off the debt, start paying off the equity. And so it's it's predominantly improved lots, but there is a small chunk of pods that we sell, usually in the 150 to 200 lots pods to the BTR guys or the people that want to take on their own project. So in those scenarios, we'll just sell the entitled lots and then focus on our bread and butter. Got it. Well, Tom, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? 
Yeah. So Tom at redoakvc.com, Victor Charlie. Fabulous. Well, Tom, love what you're doing. Next time I'm in Austin, I'll definitely look you up. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Tom at redoakvc.com. That's redoakvc.com. The link will be in the show notes. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. 